Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can join us. You can uh, click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, or any podcast platform, really. Uh, the YouTube channel, though, has a lot more to offer, including quick take reviews, and uh, but thank you very much wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. There, uh, you will get a uh, series that I've been working on called Leaving the Collection, where I pick a movie from my uh, DVD and Blu ray collection that has kind of run its course over the course of my uh, of being in my collection, and I watch it one last time give my thoughts on it and also why it's leaving. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that I had an idea for last year. And I really have, uh, have enjoyed it uh, because not only has it given me the opportunity to rewatch these movies, but also watch them with a clear eye in terms of why I liked it then versus why I like it now or don't like it in the case may be that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. We are going to wrap up 2022 in the Sonic Cinema podcast with a discussion of a film that I've been a fan of ever since I saw it uh, 30 years ago with my parents and my grand grandfather. It is Rob Reiner's Oscar-nominated film, A Few Good Men, starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and Demi Moore. Join me on the podcast are two people who've been here before, uh, Kevin Thomas and Kip Mooney. I'm grateful for them to join me again. So this with with this movie, part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is that this has been a favorite of mine. Uh, like I said, we watched it the day after Christmas, and we had some really great conversations as a family, which we'll get into as the podcast goes on. And it's been a movie that's been a staple for me ever since 1992. But I want to give my guests a chance to give me their thoughts on why, where, how they first came across this movie. Uh, Kevin, how did you first come in contact with A Few Good Men? Okay, so I first, I first came in contact with this movie when I was, probably like like 17 kind of get you know just kind of wading into wading into adult dramas like are like more r-rated older skewering material and for the longest time i knew tom cruise as you know the you know the action guy that dude from mission impossible who runs around who just runs and guns and makes quips and this was, you know, this was the first movie that I saw with him where I felt like, oh, he's like a real dramatic actor. And, you know, and the other thing is, this is back in the days when I was a real stickler about like how certain cast members are billed on films. So I saw like Jack Nicholson was second build in the thing. I'm like, ooh, Jack Nicholson's going to be in a lot of it. And then he's only in it for about 15 minutes, which <laughs> that, that I cannot tell you how annoyed my 17 year old self was about that, but I've since matured greatly 
And, you know, yeah, I think, I think it's a really, I think it's a really good movie. I'm happy that I saw it. I'm happy that I have revisited it as I, as I have matured and kind of been able to grapple with its themes and appreciate all the stuff that's great about it that we'll get into as the episode goes on. Yeah, and I, I, I like that, you know, I, I like that it's interesting that, like, you and I kind of had that first experience where it was, uh, it, it was, it was one of our first experiences into more adult filmmaking, adult dramas, uh, serious filmmaking as opposed to uh, just action movies or something like a comedy. Yeah, I mean, I remember the first ever like R-rated thing I saw in theaters was this little political drama called The Ides of March that George Clooney directed about a dec- about I think it's like twelve years ago now, back in twenty eleven. So that kind of holds a special place in my heart. Like the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater with my parents. This holds a special place for me as like, oh, the first time where I saw Tom Cruise as like a real dramatic force to be taken like as a serious actor. So that's yeah. how I appreciate it now. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Kip, what is your uh, history with A Few Good Men? Um, so I definitely came to this much later than either of you, but uh, I probably saw it for the first time in high school on, you know, AMC or TNT, something like that. One of the stations that it played on on a regular basis in the 90s and 2000s. Um, but I'm a sucker for both courtroom dramas and pretty much anything written by Aaron Sorkin. So I was of course sucked in immediately. Um, And I mean, it's just such a tight movie. Like it's over two hours, but it just flies by. There's never a second where you're looking at your watch or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and like you mentioned, it just has a great cast and it really is one of Tom Cruise's best dramatic performances. It's not necessarily, uh, something, something like Magnolia or Collateral where he's kind of stretching himself, but it really is like a strong role for his charisma and arrogance, frankly. Um, it really is kind of like the perfect character, for Cruz to play, especially at this uh, kind of stage of his career. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the uh, notes that I made when uh, when I was watching the movie this morning in preparation for this because of the fact that it's like Tom Cruise playing a cocky hotshot. I can't imagine. Yeah, I, that, he, I, yeah, you're you're right. He oh. was definitely in that. Uh, he he was definitely in that time period of his career where he was doing that on a regular basis and he played a lawyer the next year in the firm um i won the but kip you're absolutely right about the pacing of this movie it it's over it's almost two two and a quarter hours but it doesn't feel like that and i love the i love the adaptation of the movie by sorkin and Reiner, the fact that it does keep moving, and I like that the film is kind of structured it as a mystery, but it's not necessarily mystery in the sense that we're trying to figure out who killed Santiago, it's why he died. And I love that there's that 
part of this that ties into the courtroom drama aspect of the film. And it gives Reiner a lot of meat to really throw at these actors from scene to scene to scene. Yeah. um, And before we even get to like, you know, the actual uh, court martial, which is like, you know, halfway through uh, the thing that I really love about this script is that basically, you know, everything you need to know about, the characters from like the first minute of their screen time, like Mm -hmm. what she's going to say when she asks to be put on the case and Tom Cruise, you know, ignoring a superior officer because he's playing softball. And then of course, Nicholson, just this kind of like, it's like right on the line of being cartoonishly evil, but (laughs) he's such a good actor that there's still like, not justification, but like you can kind of see his logic and and how he runs the base um but with just like a very short amount of screen time you see like who these characters are what their motivations are and their whole kind of personalities in a really small amount of time which is terrific yeah it kind of uh it kind of reminded me to that point kip it i agree entirely like when i watch like i watched the i watched it in preparation this afternoon and I was in, I was very impressed. Like, okay, within about 15 seconds of everybody being on screen, I know what their deal is. Like, you know, Denny more nervously saying what she's going to, like rehearsing to herself how she's going to ask to be assigned to the case. And you can tell, like, she just, she really wants, she's a person who just really wants to prove herself, prove that she, like, should have a seat at the table, as it were. And then... And then you meet Tom Cruise's character and your first reaction is like, you've got to be kidding me. This guy is just playing softball and being all cavalier about like, oh yeah, the, the case I'm on, you know, whatever. And then when, and then Nicholson, I think that the first shot when we get like a close up of his face and he's just very stern and to the point and like, what the heck is happening? Like, <laughs> what, this is happening on my base? No, it's not. And you just like, so yeah, you, yeah, so we're going to give everybody a really great deal of characterization very efficiently. And so in every scene, you know what everybody's position is and how they're going to react to things. Yeah, and this is one of those movies, especially around the time in the uh, early 90s, that benefited from the the ability to cast a lot of actors that people know people are familiar with in supporting roles and i i love that there's a lot in this movie when it comes to a lot of the characters that are front and center that really rely on our personal history with these actors whether it's Tom Cruise, whether it's Jack Nicholson, whether it's Kiefer Sutherland, and whether it's Kevin Bacon. Like, when you see them, when you first see these characters, you understand, oh, well, this is this is one of the things that, this is what you hired this actor to do. And then you have somebody like Demi Moore, who, at the time, like, there are times where you're not quite sure how somebody's going to cast her. And that's one of the things that's good about her as an actor. And that's one of the things that she's really excelled at. 
over the years. And I love that, you know, she's, she's definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely playing off of her beauty, but at the same time, what we're seeing is ultimately her playing to her intelligence and this movie a lot. And also getting us into that point of this is why we need to be taking this case seriously. So she's con- she's convincing us as well as Cruz. This is why you need to take this case seriously, and I she makes for a great foil for uh, Kathy in this movie because of the fact that he she's the straight uh, straightforward one, the one who's very direct, who's very professional, and he's the one who needs to essentially grow up and be and be something more than he thought he could be you know and that's one of the things that's really interesting I think about Kathy when you look at those cocky hot shots that Cruz comes from he's he's cocky about his lawyer his abilities as a lawyer in one way but we start to see because of how he's pushed by some of the people around him that there's another level he has to get into if he's going to do well in this case but yeah, I, I'm, uh, you know, the, the thing about Nicholson and I mean, Nicholson's is the performance that I think most people remember because obviously the, I can't tell the truth scene at the end, but he I mean, kind of st- he kind of steals this movie out from oh, yeah. his cruise. I like, it's weird. Like it, it was almost funny to me how he just, he's not in it much. Whenever he is, you almost just feel the other actors looking like, okay, this scene belongs to him. Like he he completely runs away with this thing, and it's yeah, it's, I think the testament. I think the testament to how good he is as an actor that he leaves that the character leaves such a strong impression despite not being there mm-hmm. physically a lot of the time. Yeah, to a certain extent, you kind of forget that you really haven't seen him a lot in the movie because of the moments that you do see him are just so big and so really important to the story. And I I love, um, you know, and we'll talk about it more later, you know, the, the, the you can't handle the truth speech. One of the things that I loved hearing about was, and I think it was Rob Reiner said on a talk show or something that, you know, he he would go through the entire thing whenever they were shooting, whether the whether the camera was on him or not. And you know, he was he was like, Jack, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. It's like, no, I want to do this. I enjoy doing this because I enjoy acting. And you know, you see it in that you hear it in that performance at the end, and you hear you see the reactions that everybody has to that performance. And you get that every single scene he's in, whether it's the scene with Kittredge and uh, and uh, J.T. Walsh's character, uh, Markinson, or whether it's uh, him with Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, and Kevin Pollack, and they're having lunch. And so, like, you can see that though, you can, what you're seeing are genuine reactions to Jack Nicholson as a performer. You, you have to, and that was, completely it was completely a great piece of casting but it was funny i was reading the uh trivia for a few good men on um 
on IMDb. And one of the interesting things was uh, Gene Hackman was approached to play Jessup, but because he was still working on Unforgiven, he had to turn down. And of course, he ended up winning the Oscar for Unforgiven this year over Nicholson. That, wow, that's, yeah, I think Hackman made the right decision. Yeah. Like he was, I think that Unforgiven would, is a better role for him than this would have been. Because I, I don't know. I think that Jack Nicholson is just kind of perfect casting for this. Because you need somebody, you need somebody who can be so like, who can be so swarmy and so just like hateable so quickly mm-hmm. and and you know he, they're not gonna be around a lot but you have to remember them so you can't be like oh yeah that guy who was here an hour ago he's important now yeah like he's always in the he's always kind of in the back of your mind as you're watching like them prepare for the case and questioning everybody it's like okay how's he gonna come back into this because you don't cast Jack Nicholson for like two scenes in the movie yeah, he's he really is perfect casting. Although I was reading about the original Broadway production, and they really had good casting for that, but they definitely upgraded for the movie. So like Tom Hulse from Amadeus played the Tom Cruise part, but Stephen Lang played the Nicholson part, and I feel like on stage that would have been pretty powerful. But yeah, for the movie, they just kind of upgraded even more from already really good actors. Tom Holtz would have been fascinating in this movie at that time. I mean, I, I Grant, I can't, like, between Amadeus and Parenthood, it's kind of hard to see him in the in, in the Caffey role, but at the same time, it's like, I can see that working for stage, because he he's such a terrific and underrated actor, as far as playing that type of character that Caffey is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um... You know, one one of the but another great casting uh, in this movie is Wolfgang Bodison as uh, Downey, and I love this story on his casting because he was a location scout for Reiner while making this movie, and Reiner looked at him and like, oh well, he he's a Marine. He I think he'd be perfect for Dawson, huh. and he he is a fantastic fit for this movie. And he's gone on to really long successful career doing combination of tv and movies but um he he's really terrific and i i love his his role in this movie is he's another one of these characters who is pushing kathy to be a better lawyer than he thinks he can be and you know downey is the more passive person and he kind of goes along with what Dawson says, but at the same time, he, you've got strength and weakness between the two of them. And I think that that makes for a really interesting dynamic that really kind of plays out as we learn more about the the story of how Santiago died throughout the movie. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. It's kind of a yeah. He definitely stood. I can't think of anything else I've seen him in, strangely, but I, watching him, I was like, I hope that this guy went, to, went on to have a good career. He's, he has to, con, yeah, because he has to do, 
he has to do some pretty big, like emotional heavy lifting in certain scenes. Like Andy has to just convey a lot of emotions through his face without any dialogue at all early on. But you get, but you still get the sense because of him that like this is a this is like a fully fleshed out guy who is he's confused, is extremely devoted to his country, to his belief systems, you know, to his core. Like it's, I can't imagine it would easy to convey that, but he does it, he does it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at him and, yeah, he's, he's done a lot of TV, he's done a lot of independent work and stuff like that, but at the same time, I mean, he's, he's worked on, you know, I mean, he, he's worked on a few TV shows you'll probably have heard of in individual episodes, like he was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., he was on ER, he was on Bones, he's been on NCIS, basically a lot of TV cop shows and military shows. Um, but I mean, he, he's also had some, he's, he's also been in some movies and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a terrific presence in here for the, the same reason you mentioned because of the fact that when, you know, when he says, you know, when he says the code, the Marine code, like you believe that he believes it and, it's it's just really it it's really important that you get that because of the fact that it when the ending does come it it just it just makes that it it just makes that last part where we see their fate just all the more impactful yeah it's really fascinating to me how like we never see santiago as a character we just hear that letter that he wrote and like literally every person who's called to the witness stand loves and is in some cases like incredibly obsessed with being a Marine. And all Santiago wanted to do was go home and, and not, this is the life that he realized he didn't want it. And no one would give him that because everybody else couldn't even really fathom what that was like about not wanting to be yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that um you know we we see that early scene with Jessup and Ketrick and uh Kittrick and uh Markinson talking about Santiago after we hear the letter and it's it's interesting that we you know you would think that normally somebody who clearly is not cut out to be a Marine, you, you would think that their natural impulse would be, yeah, he, he's, he's not fit for, but you know, there's, there's certainly a, there's certainly a lot of ego between Kittrick and Jessup to where, okay, we're going to train this kid. Here's what you're going to do. And, you know, it's unspoken. And so it makes all the sense when, everything is ultimately revealed that it it plays out the way that it does. And because of the fact that, and this is so much of this is about following orders and so much of this movie boils down to following orders. You know, everybody to a certain extent is following orders in this movie, but it's just a, 
it just depends on how you handle that responsibility of what those orders are. Like Caffey's following orders in this movie. Weinberg is following orders in this movie. Galloway, she's kind of going around the system to insert herself into it, but she's doing it because of the fact that she feels like it's the right thing to do. And, you know, because of the fact that she's met these two before Kathy does, she because of the fact that she she feels like there's something fishy going on here. And it it just really is it's interesting to see how different actor how different characters in this movie deal with following orders versus uh kind of going in their own way. Yeah, I agree. I think I think another example that like the way that Kevin Bacon's character is following orders, like he's, he, I think he is, he seems like kind of conflicted or like trying to play both sides of he's a friend to Kathy, but he's also, he also wants to like do his job and defend his side of the case. And I think Kevin Bacon is another piece of perfect casting for that because he, he's a guy who brings like a little bit of intensity and charisma to pretty much everything he's attached to. And I don't know, for some reason I couldn't, for some reason I thought about him in the, in the river wild watching this (laughs) for a moment. I was like, I think that was the last thing I saw him in. And so it was just, it was, it was fun for me to just be reminded like, wow, he can play like really intense guys like that or much more controlled individuals like this and again I communicate this communicated that conflict of yes Kathy I'm your friend but I'm also fighting against you in this case and I'm going to do my best to try and win it even though I think something might be fishy yeah it's interesting because kind of almost every character in the movie feels like they're doing the right thing uh I mean other than I guess the cover-up and the you know, some of the other crimes that are committed, like, you know, Kevin Bacon, Tom Cruise, even the Marines who are on trial thought they were doing the right thing because that's what they, you know, they've been taught to follow orders. And so they're, you know, something goes wrong and now everybody is kind of forced into, you know, uncomfortable positions that they didn't want to be in and seeing how some of them kind of rise to the occasion is, is makes for just, Really good drama. Yeah. Um, at this point, I, I think it's a good I think it's a good point at this this point, since we're talking about making for good drama to talk about Rob Reiner at this point of his career. Um, you know, a lot of times on Twitter, I know you guys have both seen this, you know, we we see people, okay, who had the best three runs, run of three movies of all time and it's like what director has had probably the best run of movies of all time and Rob Reiner inevitably comes up in a lot of cases now granted he hasn't made a movie in ages but and his career certainly did not end the same way that it started but we got this is Spinal Tap The Sure Thing, Stand By Me The Princess Bride Um, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. And, I mean, there are few... Now, I mean, granted, you can... 
you can say there are other filmmakers who had runs with more great films, but there are few filmmakers who have ever been that consistent in their ability to tell a wide variety of stories as Reiner at that point in his career. And I, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really striking to have this as a, you know, in a way you look at this, you look at misery, you know, he's, he's, to a certain extent, these are kind of prestige films in a lot of ways, but they're still very popcorn movies. Like these are still very much entertain entertain movies. And I think that's one of the things that I think that's part of the reason that he doesn't necessarily get the credit he should get in a larger degree as a filmmaker because of the fact that especially you know, you you look at this as Final Tap, you look at The Princess Bride and The Sure Thing, they're basically all comedies, fairy tales. I mean, you know, Grand Final Tap and Princess Bride are justly celebrated as classics, <laughs> but, you know, they're fun movies. And that's something that is very difficult. Like, even, even Spielberg didn't get that many movies before he fell on this fell on his talents with 1941. Now, Grand Rob Reiner, I think, fell off harder with North, which was his next film after oh, this. Oh, really? But even yeah, as a kid, I was like, this hurt. movie is terrible. Well, I mean, I, I've never seen North, but I saw I saw an internet review of North. Somebody did like a video review on it, and watching it, I just said, this looks like one of the worst movies I will never watch. Yeah, it's, it's not it really good. Is. It's it's not well, good. It's just really like I didn't because I didn't know that he had done. I didn't know that Rob Reiner had done all of those things consecutively, and so to just hear that, I mean, I haven't seen everything on that list, but the ones I have seen have all been like they're all classics to varying extents, and they're all very yeah. different from each other. Like Misery feels nothing like this. Princess Bride feels nothing like this. Stand by Me feels nothing like this. But they're all really well-directed, entertaining movies that just draw you in with what they're doing. And so, yeah, I'd say, so, yeah, I'd say this run in terms of directing is definitely, like, one of the strongest that I, that I can say I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's shame because after North, like, you know, even Spielberg after, you know, ni- 1941, he comes back with uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or you know after the BFG or one of his lesser movies he comes back with something really great that you know gets nominated for best picture but man Rob Reiner really never really recovered from North uh, yeah, I mean, no. I've seen a couple of his movies since and they're you know some of them well, are okay. did, did he do the bucket list was that him yes he did yes. okay yeah, yeah I, I, was that the last movie that he did oh no he's done plenty since he even did uh a very mediocre biopic of LBJ with Woody Harrelson. Oh, oh wow. Oh, okay, um, that yeah. Oh, that just that, a lot of like mediocrity and a lot that, of stuff that, that went weird. straight to VOD or you know oh. played at a festival and that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the last Reiner thing that I saw that I remember seeing was the bucket list. I remember we rented it from Blockbuster. If any of your listeners still know what that is. And so 
you know, we, I remember I was like, yeah, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman in a movie together. This is going to be great. And I was like, it's okay. Yeah. It's yeah, not I know my bad. It's okay. Yeah, my mom liked the bucket list. Uh, I don't remember if I saw, and so it goes by. No, I haven't seen any of the other movies oh, after yeah, I that. Never, um, I never saw it, and so it goes. Yeah, it feels almost like his target audience is like 60 and above. Yeah. Well, it's a lot funny. of his movies are like very sentimental and like, uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Like, it, you would never guess that watching this. Like, I don't think that this is like one of the least sentimental movies I've ever seen in my life and I kind of love it for that I mean even something like Stand By Me like you would think that that type of movie which is a coming of age movie about you know an older person looking back on his childhood you would think that that would reek of sentimentality but really doesn't I think it's the combination of Reiner and that short story by Stephen King but I mean you know yeah it's I mean, really, probably even it's it's not great, but Ghosts of Mississippi is all right. I've always heard decent things about the American president, but yeah, that's yeah, Amer- American president was good. That's, yeah, American. I've, I've it's, seen it's, that. it's another uh, Sorkin uh, written movie, and I mean, it's very light. It's not nearly as impressive as this. No, movie. and it yeah. and it kind of. I will say the. The American president, in comparison to this, wears its politics on its sleeve a lot more than this does. Mm-hmm. Like, not that this doesn't have its own, not that this doesn't have its own stuff, but like the American president, it is actually like it's a romantic comedy drama that is attempting to kind of interact with. I guess the politics of the late nineties, I wasn't around for that. So I don't, I don't know from experience what they were, but like there are, there are extended scenes of people talking about like gun control and things like that. And it's like, okay, this is unexpected for what's a, a rom-com. Yeah. Even trying to engage with ideas like this. Yeah. Well, even uh, Annette Benning's character is like a climate activist, like <laughs> in the mid nineties trying yeah. to get, Washington to do anything about climate change, which uh, <laughs> I guess that would have been nice if someone would have listened. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the things I do like about this movie is that it doesn't take a direct stance when it comes to the politics of the military, the ideas of what the military stands for. We do get multiple sides of it from what Jessup says is I you can't handle the truth speech to even what Downey says at the end to, uh, or what Dawson says at the end of Downey when Downey's wondering, well, what, what's going on? I mean, this, you know, we we're off, aren't we off the hook for this? And Dawson's like, no, because it's, even though we were following orders, we ultimately broke our code as soldiers and that is and it's funny because at the discussions that my parents and my grandfather had at the time were centered around that because my grandfather was 
Now, sure, it's like, well, they were just, they were following orders. Why did they still get in trouble? It's like, well, it's because of, I mean, they say it. And it's because of the fact that, you know, they're supposed to, they're supposed to protect people who can't fight for themselves. And that is one of the most poignant ideas of what a soldier is supposed to be. And that's why it hits so hard when you hear the verdict read out and that last charge comes up and it's like, and you, you start to think about it like, okay, I get it. And especially once Dawson says that you get why there couldn't be no repercussions from that, for them. Um, as much as we've come to care about them, uh, throughout the film. And I, I love that you do care about them. And that's one of the things that's so great about this movie. This isn't just about the lawyers. This isn't just about the big showdowns in the courtroom. It's about the individual. It's about all of the individuals. And Kip, you're, you're right. It's like, you know, Santiago, we really don't get to know him, but to a certain extent, we can kind of, understand where he's coming from even and it's like he's trying to do the right thing now granted he may may not have done it in the right way but he's ultimately going about the way that speaks the most to who he is and i i love that there are these all these different perspectives all these different characters that make us think in this movie yeah it really is not I would say it walks a very fine line. It's not pro-military or anti-military, but it's against, you know, corruption and, and bullying and, you know, getting away with, you know, harming other people because that's the way it's supposed to be done. Um, So, I mean, it's really impressive how it manages to be powerful like that without being wishy-washy that, you know, this was kind of an evil guy in charge and this chain of events is how this poor kid ended up dead. Uh, but it's not, you know, calling for, you know, anything drastic, drastic, just, you know, you've got to have compassionate people at every level. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like, and I, I know like Aaron Sorkin occasionally, like he gets, Aaron Sorkin gets criticized for like having his characters be mouthpieces for his opinions sometimes. And I don't, I think that's pretty much at a minimum in this. I think this is, this is probably one of the best scripts that he's written. Like I, I love all, like, I love it. You can tell where the bits of like little Sorkin-esque dialogue are in here, especially in the beginning. I, I like how they're, to me, there's a, there's a good amount of like little bits of humor bound in this in terms of like like Tom Cruise not knowing like oh oh six hundred means six o'clock in the morning or oh I've, oh I've got you know cocoa pebbles and yoohoo at my house you want anything else you go get it just yeah. little, there's like little tiny jokes in there to alleviate tension appropriately and then the tension. I think it it helps endear you to these to, uh, to these guys as people, so that when the big like emotional sweeping drama comes, you're more invested in it. Yeah, I definitely agree. But also, like 
on the other side, like my one complaint about the movie, even as someone who like has seen everything Aaron Sorkin has ever done and loves pretty much all of it is that there's always at least one scene or line of dialogue that's just like very cringe and embarrassing. And for me in this movie, it's when, uh, Cruz is drunk and he's talking about what's going to happen to them if they accuse Jessup of committing a crime. And then he just kind of goes on this rant for like five minutes, just getting louder and louder. I I, I laughed at that, honestly. Like I had forgotten that scene. And when it got to it, when it got to it, I just, I started laughing. And I was like, I I know I'm not supposed to laugh, but he's, he's so overacting this and the dialogue is so hammy that it's like no Cruz you're not that good yet in later years you will be there you're not there yet and that's actually that's actually one of my complaints about the movie is that so I had I just saw Risky Business about a month ago or I saw it again I had seen it when I was younger I saw it again and really appreciate it and so I spent the first half of this movie going like the risky business kid is gonna defend the marine (laughs) (laughs) like it was like i I felt like i feel like in this early period like tom cruise like people always say like oh leonardo DiCaprio had to like grow out of his boyish good looks and then he to turn into an adult like have more mature roles in the first half of this i feel i i just saw like I just saw Tom Cruise because he is playing into the kind of cocky type thing. And I think there's the way that they shoot him, it just looks a lot more useful. And then as it goes on, he matures and he disappears into the character for me. Yeah. He, you know, and the thing is, it's like, look, I mean, all all you have to do is look at Tom Cruise and like Top Gun and the mission of, possible movies now and see they he's still trying to hold on to his youthful looks as much as possible but the fact of matter is you you can tell he's he's getting up there in age i mean part of that is because of the fact that he's playing it in action adventure movies but um yeah it's like he is so young in this and it's like but kip that has my favorite line where he calls her galactically stupid um <laughs> that was pretty I, good the, the yeah, thing about yeah. teaching typewriter maintenance like <laughs> it doesn't make any sense like it's just baffling where that even came from drunk and rambling yeah it, it's it's funny because of the fact that in a weird way you can kind of look at that as sort of the inverse of the you know of of the speech at the end of uh, Jerry Maguire, where he's so <laughs> quiet and so, like measured and controlled and trying to, you know, be heartfelt. And then he's just going completely over the top and ludicrous. And <laughs> this one, it's, it's just absolutely hilarious. But no, I mean, I, I can, I can see why that, but I can see why that scene is, uh, a bit cringe. But I mean, at the same time, I, I, I do love the place that ends up the fact that, you know, you have that scene between he and Sam, and Kevin Pollack is just one of the unheralded, uh, you know, clutch hitters in in this cast. He he, and I I love that he's in a way he feels like the audience surrogate because of the fact that it's like he he's coming from this from a very practical standpoint. 
I mean, even even if we don't necessarily agree that he feel the way with the way he feels, we understand it because of the fact that he's looking at this. You you kind of get the impression he's looking at this as as a father, as a husband, as somebody who is just looking at it in in a way he's looking at it in as black and white terms as a lot of other people. But at the same time, he's again, he's he's basically following orders that he's supposed to be with Kathy on this, but you do kind of see him you you do kind of see how this wears on him as it as the the courtroom aspect of it go, as the trial goes further and further on. And I I I just Pollock just has some really terrific moments here. I, I think it's so funny that Kevin Pollock like almost puts a hat on a hat when he's like, you don't need me. Like I'm just gonna be there taking up space and then he basically doesn't utter another word until that senior <laughs> cruise is drunk. Um, but you're right, he he really is great, but those he's used effectively, even though I guess I always want to want more from Kevin Pollock, but yeah, he's he's good in those few scenes that where he actually gets to say something. Yeah, he he's he, he is he is eternally the third man in the room. Where it's like, okay, the other two people are, and then you. I mean Probably the biggest role I've seen him play is in the whole nine yards. And even in that, he doesn't, like, he's only got, like, a few scenes, really. Well, a few years later, he was, after this, he was also in The Usual Suspects, where he has, he has, he has that role, he has one of those roles where it's like, he, he, he basically comes in, fills his, fills his space in, in the movie, and really just, and and really just you know either cracks us up with what he's saying and how he says it, or is providing some emotion that we didn't necessarily expect. And I, I yeah, Pollock is terrific whenever you uh, see him in anything. And yeah, the whole nine yards. I I've always been a fan of the whole nine yards. He's he's really entertaining in that one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, another another aspect of this that. Another aspect of this that I really like is the idea that I really like the the aspect of Kathy's character that he is he's trying to get out of his father's shadow. Like we learned that his father was a well-respected and successful lawyer, and you kind of get the sense that he is intimidated by that and hasn't. To me, at least, it felt like he had kind of been like purposefully not living up to his potential, just kind of choosing to take the easy way. And then this case like forces him to, you know, to embrace who, to embrace his own legal prowess and stand up on his own two feet and get out of that shadow. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, and I mean, again, that's, that's part of Cruz in this era too, because Top Gun was the same way. Days of Thunder was the same way. He he was very much in. I mean, to a certain extent, Rain Man was that way too. So I mean, you're. And I think I think if I remember correctly, Color Money plays into that a little bit as well. Oh, does it? Yeah, that that's right. It's pretty much uh, 
Oh, so that's all the Tom. So that's all Tom Cruise did was like, I have to get out of the thumb of my under the thumb of my father. Like that. Yeah. That's what. Okay. Well. Wow. Okay. So now I just need to watch the color of money and just. It, it, it would be like, where's Waddle? Like, where's Cruz's daddy issues? <laughs> yeah, you got Top Gun, Color of Money, Cocktail, Rain Man, Days of Thunder, oh, no. The Firm. <laughs> Just, yeah, to a certain uh, extent, The Firm is the exact yeah, same way. The, yeah. the, now, I, now I just wanted to do another movie where it's like he's, you know, he's like, what, 51 now? And he's still, like, cast Robert Duvall as his dad or something. He's trying to get out of the sum of that. Oh, he's still he he's like sixty now, I think. Oh, isn't he? Well, that would be even better than just like do a return to the old days. Yeah, if he would even. But yeah, I think. But seriously, I think I think this is. Oh, I think. Yeah, I think he plays on that really well in this particular role mm-hmm. like, the way that it's written and the way that the way that he performs it it's very like i think it kind of it just makes him easy to root for it makes you like him in spite of how cocky he is and then he's cocky but he's able to back it up once he gets his button gear yeah so he says like if you have a character who is extremely cocky about something but they're really good at what they do then it's acceptable. Again, another Tom Cruise movie, like Top Gun Maverick, where you've got Glenn Powell being being cocky about how great of a pilot he is, and then he gets to show that. Yeah. This is the case of that, where you're like, okay, he, yeah, Cappy's really, really cocky about how strong of a lawyer he is, but then we actually see it, and see how he gets under Jessup's skin. And so you're like, oh yeah, no, he has a right to be, he has a right to be a little bit cocky about himself and what he can do. He's really great at it. Yeah, and with Kittred too, I mean, you can see in both of those uh, both of those uh, questionings that he has with those those two characters in particular, once he's you know, he's like a dog with a bone. Like, once he finds that once he finds that bone, he's, he knows what he, he knows where he's going to go with it. And you really, I, I do really love that you see that in his character in this movie. But I, I also love that when he's, when they're getting ready for the case, when the case hasn't quite started yet, like he's, he's telling them all of these things that they shouldn't be doing in, in, at the trial, you know, if something doesn't go our way, like don't show it and all that stuff. And you do kind of see, even when stuff, doesn't go right like with the doctor or with Downey he's not showing that and he's got he's got a really strong poker face and this and you know and one of my favorite moments of Cruz's acting in this is when he after he he doesn't dismiss Jessup at the end is like I'm not done questioning you sit sit down we're not done with this and then you see him go to the table to the table where they're at and you see him with the water and it's shaking and it's like you can <laughs> tell okay the nerves are off the charts with him right now yeah. it, it's just such a great piece of physical acting i i do love this performance is 
terrific from Cruz. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that this is one of those movies where, you know, yeah, everybody was talking about Nicholson afterwards, but everybody does really terrific work in this film. Even Christopher Guest, of all freaking people, as the <laughs> doctor. I love his one scene on the stand. Noah Wiley's great. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s great in this movie. J.T. Yeah. Walsh is fantastic. Like, everybody delivers in this movie. Yeah, J.T. Walsh is, like, one of my all-time favorite character actors, and I really wish that he was still around because yeah, he's one of those people where it doesn't matter whether the movie was good or bad. Like, he was phenomenal for two minutes or mm-hmm. 20 minutes or however long he was in it. Um, but you mentioned your favorite little thing about Cruise was the water glass. Uh, I think mine is when... Um, Noah Wiley is on the stand and Kevin Bacon is trying to, uh, I guess, try to get the jury to believe that because there's nothing written in like the code of conduct about a code red, it's not really a thing that people know about or participate in. And then right as Kevin Bacon is walking back yeah. to the table. Cruz just grabs the manual from him and says, okay, can you tell me where the mess hall is? Yeah. It's just such a great little moment, but what makes it is him grabbing the book from him before he even sits down. It's just, yeah. just a perfect little acting moment. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't even know what my favorite acting moment from Cruz would be in this. Because there's all the little, there's all the little things you mentioned, and then like there's this, again, like, like you said, like Demi Moore is basically kind of making him care about the case as much as, as much as she is us, and I, so I, I feel like for some of the movies she's kind of the audience avatar because the way that she sees Cruz throughout the story is kind of how I saw him. Yeah. She's like, okay, so I'm competent. I'm good at my job. I'm, I know how to get this case. She has any superiors. And she's like, like, no, we're going to get someone from division. And then she goes out and he's playing softball. And her first impression is, really? This, okay, okay, this guy, fine. And then as she warms up to him, we do too. And I, I attribute that to the script and just, how she reacts to him on screen. I feel like if you had gotten somebody that wasn't as strong as Moore is in the part, we wouldn't like Cruz's character as much. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think, so yeah, that's, uh, so yeah, everybody, everybody's really good. Like, I, I think there are very few movies where you can say, like, everybody in it is really, 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 really good and has a moment to shine. And this is one of those movies. Yeah, I I I love that. I I definitely love that moment with uh, Cruz and the uh, the the manual. You're you're right. That's that's a terrific moment. That's one of the things that I love about this movie is that it it and this is I think something that's great in great dramas where they they find places to put humor to disarm you in a lot of ways and it's not necessarily just chuckle chuckle laugh out loud comedy it's moments that you're going to think about where 
you're going to find yourself laughing because of just how the moment is plays within the context of the film. And, uh, you know, I, I love, uh, Kevin Bacon's character after, after he's heard Jessup admit to ordering the code right after that speech, like he, he's just, he's dumbfounded. He, he just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. And then Tom Cruise is like, Jack, uh, is like okay yeah he he comes back to earth to a certain extent and then you know with uh with Kiefer Sutherland it's like you you really do get the this this impression that he's you know this is this is kind of the stock Kiefer Sutherland character where it's like he's he's playing a macho badass and i i love him on the stand where after you know after Cruz's says, like, isn't it unreasonable that Dawson would defy you again if you didn't tell him to order the code red? And he just has this look of, he, he's not going to answer, but at the same time, he's he's like, yeah, you, you've clearly gotten a rise out of me because of that. And it, there, there are all of these little moments that are just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, I, and I found yeah, I found one I figured, and I I remembered what my favorite lacking moment from Cruise was, and it was the, it's just the way the way that he delivers the line about like, like he's giving him okay, we're gonna go to my house and study, and if you want, I've got like cocoa pops and YooHoo in my fridge yeah. or something like <laughs> just the way that line as it's written and the way that he delivers it is like he's being like, I like that we still see that. I like that we still see that little bit of immaturity in him. It's like he's a grown man, but the only thing he has to eat in his house is like Cocoa Pops and you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my favorite little moment from him because it's a it's a it's a little piece of levity, and it reminds us like he's not he doesn't just snap all serious with every tip of the hat. Like he's still the same sort of immature guy that we saw at the start. He's just gotten better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he he's still basically living that bachelor life of <laughs> oh yeah, I don't have anything in my in 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 my uh refrigerator so yeah. Um and I I do like, you know, I apparently I was again I was reading the trivia and Aaron Sorkin mentioned and this is said by Aaron Sorkin apparently somebody at the studio wanted uh Caffrey and uh Joanne to and Galloway to get romantically involved, and you know there there are times where the movie jokes about that to a certain extent, but at the same time, I'm I'm so glad that that's not a part yeah. of this movie because it would just complete well a would have completely thrown off the entire movie's perspective and just the storytelling would it wouldn't have fit, no. you know the with the way that things are with the way things go in this movie, but it's, it's also, it, it's kind of refreshing that you have a movie like this where you would naturally think with somebody, people like Tom Cruise and Demi Moore, Oh, they're intended to get together, but that's not how it plays. And I, I love that. Yeah. I'm so, that was probably the biggest surprise of this. Cause I, I hadn't seen this in about three years or so. 
And that, so seeing that they didn't get together, I just breathed a sigh of relief that they didn't kiss at the end. Because it's like, this is a professional relationship. You two are grown adults. Be, yeah. be grown adults. Like, maybe you'll collaborate on a case again, but you're not going to get together. Yeah, I just like how it defies the kind of typical, like, Hollywood law states that two sexy people must, you know, must become romantic. Yeah. Yeah, and it will have, it will have completely... It, it would have completely cheapened uh, Galloway as a character to do that. It's like, oh, well, she's just here to get romantically involved with Kathy. And it's like, no, she's, she's, here to, she, she's here to get him to grow the hell up when it comes to being a lawyer. And wow. I, I, that, that's just such a great touch. Um, what, are your, what are some of your favorite uh, courtroom dramas? I mean, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is pretty much the gold standard. Um, and I guess it's not necessarily a courtroom drama, but a, a courthouse drama, which is, you know, 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Where they, yeah. you know, they're just, you don't hear any of the trial, just the debate among the jury. Um, and then it's not a drama, but the one I always want to watch the most is My Cousin Benny. <laughs> I mean, it it hews to the formula to a large degree, so I, oh, yeah. I I get that. You got the you got the surprise, you know, evidence right at the end, and, and yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I guess some of mine would be to kill a mockingbird is one. Uh, a time to kill is one that I'm really fond of. I of the Joel Schumacher movies I've seen, that one is probably my favorite at this point just because of how just because of how different it is from everything else that I've seen of his so far. Just like I like the maturity of it. And then oh come on. Now I'm that's sad. I can't think of a third one. But I do I'm just generally a fan of courtroom dramas overall. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I just I think it's a chance to, you know, in the best cases, it can be just really solid, entertaining drama like this that gives actors a real chance to shine. Or in other cases, it can be, you know, it can be more, you know, more thoughtful about things and, you know, just make, you know, just, you just dig into, you just dig into the different sides of whatever issue the, the case is about. I think it's a. I think it's kind of an undervalued genre at this point. Yeah. In terms of like how you know, in terms of how effective it can be. Hmm. I was just looking at the AFI's top ten list of courtroom dramas, and I can't believe I forgot the verdict. Oh, the verdict is excellent. Oh, yeah, I was going to bring up the verdict. Yeah. Um, and going with the uh, John Grisham. Uh, well, I I'm a big fan of the Rainmaker. And uh, I, I'm, I, I really, I really find that one an entertaining version of the, uh, of the formula. And uh, you know, spoiler in 2023, you'll be able to hear me talk about that on Nostalgia Cast. And uh, we we talked about that in their uh, 90s Palooza um, mm-hmm. season. And 
Uh, 12 Angry Men's fantastic. I finally watched that for the first time last year, and it's such a good movie. Uh, I, I, it, for the exact same reasons that you mentioned, Kip, because of the fact that it doesn't, you see nothing of the trial, but it still deals with the ideas that a trial tends to deal with. And To Kill Mockingbird, of course, is one of the gold standards. But uh, I, I do also want to say uh, Robert Richardson's cinematography here is really fantastic. I forgot about the fact that they shot in scope, and I guess that's something he uh, convinced Reiner to do for the cop, the courtroom drama aspect. And I, I love some of the shots that you see in it with, um, you know, scenes. You you do see scenes where you know you 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 see the different perspectives of like up to three different people in the three main people in the frame at the same time and from the gallery as well as from the uh, stand. And it's really terrific. And I love Mark Shaman's score in this. It's really, you know, for somebody who's best known for comedic writing, this is a really gripping, suspenseful score. And I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this score. I've always loved this one. Um, you were talking about um, the cinematography, and I really think just I just had this big smile on my face during the shot towards the end where they're reading off the verdict for each of the charges, and it pans to Cruz, and then Demi Moore, and then Kevin Pollock, and then the two Marines. Yeah, and, like everybody's so happy that they're not guilty, and then their faces fall. Yeah, once they read that the you know they're guilty on the last charge, and that, that's just good camera work and editing and acting all in one shot. Yeah. The, the sim, I think the cinematography comes, comes, I think the best parts of the movie, like shot wise, it's already courtroom scenes. I think there are a lot, I like that he gets a ton of like varied angles of it. We get a good sense of, we get a really good sense of like the, the layout of the room. And then for the, you know, for the aforementioned, you can hear the true speech. That one shot on Nicholson's face as he's just like firing it off is really, really, really good. And then, like, it, and then after that, like, when Cruz is questioning after, the I love the close up on his face and just how intense his eyes are. That, yeah, that stuck out to me. It's like, yeah, Cruz's eyes in that one moment are really really great this like is conveying like the passion the anger that he has yeah and yeah this like the, yeah this like this yeah the cinematography during that particular bit is really good at this like building the energy up of it and then it just exploding as nicholson does when he mm-hmm. lays when he lays his position out and it's not and it's not really and none of it is really showy like there's there's not there's not a ton of like there, it, there's nothing really fancy about how it's about and it's a shot. It's just like really, really good shot setups that do what they need to do really efficiently, but they grip you. Like they don't need any fancy editing tricks on this at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the way that the, that last part especially is edited together is just so brilliant because of the fact that. So much of it is on Nicholson. And 
Yeah, it, I, I ran this, man, that the summer after this came out, I ran it so much. I basically had Nicholson's speech memorized. Um, and Cove, Cove said in, in its entirely, I, I, I can't now, but, um, yeah, it, it's such a, it's such an amazing ending and it's such a, the way that this builds, like I said, I mean, this, this is a thriller and this is, but it's a thriller that's almost entirely about people talking and communicating. There's not a lot of direct action in it. And I think there's a horrible version of this movie where you get so much action going in there. Mm. And I, I love that this is, this ultimately is about the characters and this is ultimately about the narrative and about the basic idea of what it means to serve. And I, I, whether you're a lawyer serving your, serving your clients, whether you are a colonel serving your country, whether you are a prosecutor serving, you know, the, the military, what does that mean? And I, I love that that's one of the things that we come away from in that is it's one of the biggest, one of the biggest ideas in this movie. And it's, you know, it's, it's a terrific film. I, I, I've always been a fan of this. It's like, because we watched it around Christmas, this was up until when my grandfather passed away, this was basically Christmas tradition. We would, we would watch a few good men together and it's one of the few, my dad didn't really watch a lot of movies, but we, he would watch this one with us. And uh, it's, it's one that we, it's one I've always been a big fan of. And, uh, you know, if you guys have anything more to say, feel free. Uh, I do, but I do want to say thank you very much for both of you for joining me on this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, my uh, my one last note is uh, I guess this film is a good example of why it's important to invest in physical media. Um, <laughs> based on our, oh, some of our chats before yeah. the movie, because um, yeah. right now currently you cannot stream or rent this anywhere; you can only buy it digitally. So yeah, yeah. invest in physical media, kids. Uh, yeah. Physical media is your friend because eventually you'll move into an apartment where you won't have your internet set up for a few days. <laughs> and so if you don't have, I think that happened to me earlier this year. So where I moved, I moved into a new apartment. I didn't have internet for a week. And so I was just kind of stuck with my DVD collection. And I was like, I'm very thankful for all of this. Yeah. You know, you kind of, but yeah, it is. But yeah, always, if you love, my thing is, if you love a movie or even just enjoy a movie to any extent, if you see it for cheap enough, just pick it up. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know this one came out probably earlier this year on 4K, so I mean it's well worth picking up. It and like like we said, Robert Richardson, there are some terrific cinematography in this movie, so I have to imagine this looks great. And that's one of the things that I like about uh Rob Reiner. I mean, even in the movies that he was making, even something like Spinal Tap, which looks like a documentary, it looks good. I mean, it looks like a great movie. It looks like a documentary made by somebody who's making a rock documentary. And, (laughs) but you also, 
look at the princess bride which is beautiful movie you look Mm at stand by me you look at when harry met sally but yeah definitely invest in physical media i mean we it's funny kevin and i were talking a lot about what's going on with uh hbo max and that's that basically is Uh, that's basically you know we won't yeah we won't talk about it we won't rehash it but basically it's the strongest case for making sure that if you love something whether it's a movie whether it's a tv show if it's available in physical media invest in the physical media because of the fact that you'll have it forever you'll have access to it forever and it's it's this is a movie that i always love revisiting and uh you know without physical media i wouldn't have been able to revisit for a long time so uh but yeah thank you guys for joining me tonight i'm glad we were able to have this discussion yeah thanks for having us thank you so much i'd like to thank kip and kevin for joining me on the podcast and uh that's going to do it with for the 2022 run of the Science Cinema podcast. Thank you to everybody, whether it's filmmakers, whether it's uh, film critics, whether it's fellow podcasters who joined me on the podcast this year. I, I, I feel like this run of discussions has been one of my favorites uh, to have, whether it was Darren and Danielle and I talked about Steven Spielberg, whether it was Darren and I talking about Hans Zimmer, Danielle and I talking about Jurassic World, Dominion, me talking with Phil Faso about horror or Italian neorealism, having Morgan and Chels on to talk about MGM, Scott Weinberg talking about horror, uh, Becky O'Brien talking about soundtracks. I, I'm really looking forward to having all of these people back in the future. I really hope to have all of them back in the future. And I hope to have all of you back listening in 2023. I'm going to be bringing a lot more new guests on, as well as some returning guests. And I cannot wait for those discussions. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Check us out at Patreon dot com backslash sonic cinema if you haven't picked it up pick up my player phd original score on bandcamp as well as all my other albums they're on uh, bandcamp and obviously continue to read at www.sonic-cinema.com thank you very much Mm -hmm.